did, which is hard when the purpose of incarceration is to remove people from society. So rethinking the way that we are incarcerating people and what what is happening while they're there so that we're not just, you know, releasing them on that day and giving them some, you know, phone numbers to call for a job, but that before, way, way, way before, we're thinking about reentry from day one of being placed into the facility. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest. And today, sadly, is our last episode for season two. Um, so to end our season, we had to do something on criminal justice reform. Um, this has been a big topic over the last year or so. And so it's been a big topic in the Black community, in our community. And so we wanted to make sure we addressed it before we get, um, before we ended our season. And so today we're excited um, to really have a conversation um, that's going to be really in-depth and interesting. And so our guest today is Ms. Cassandra Ramdath, and she is from the Urban Institute, and she is here to discuss um, criminal justice reform. And so to give you a little bit of background about Cassandra, um, she is a senior research associate in the Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center, and she is the project director for the Center's Prison Research and Innovation Initiative, which is a five-year $10 million initiative using evidence to drive prison reforms and launch a national movement to redefine corrections. And so Cassandra's research portfolio focuses on corrections reform, health and justice, uh, procedural fairness, and youth violence. So Cassandra, uh, we're excited to have you on the show and we thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and uh, appreciate you inviting me. And I'm very excited to engage with you all on this very important topic. Thank you. Yeah. So so our first question, Cassandra, just to start off, we know, um, I think last month we had a big case of Derek Chauvin's trial wrapped up and he was found guilty, you know, on all uh, three charges. And so we kind of wanted to just touch on it and get your thoughts on that trial. And so uh, I guess the question is, you know, what did you think of, of the Derek Chauvin trial and the George Floyd trial, just how that played out? And and do you think, though, this is kind of a, a watershed moment for um, the criminal justice system when it comes to holding police accountable um, when they do commit, you know, what, what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd? Yeah, that's a really, really great um, uh, question. And, you know, I think that this case is definitely a milestone and it's going to go down in history um, for various reasons. But, you know, also wanting to recognize that the issue of racial injustice in the American criminal legal system is is not new. It goes way back well before George Floyd to the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks, Rodney King. We've seen this occurring time and time again. And despite decades of research demonstrating um, the history of racism and bias in policing, we're still seeing that Black and brown people are being harmed or killed at the hands of the police. And so I do think that this was a a historic case. Um, Having a guilty verdict was really symbolic and is going down in history because of how often um, deaths happen of black and brown people by the police and the guilty verdict is not found. So often there is no accountability. And so this is why this the Chauvin trial was so important for for the black community. And, you know, again, highlighting that it's also not new. Um, We've seen time and time again, um, just recently in 2018, police officer Jason Van Dyke was one of the first Chicago police officers in 50 years to be found guilty of the murder of a for fatally shooting a 17-year-old Laquan McDonald. And so, again, guilty verdict is not necessarily changing the system, um, but, you know, it's a move in the right direction. The way that we need to think about this is it doesn't necessarily change the lack of public trust in police officers. There's still a deep-rooted history of racism and police brutality, profiling, and the acts are disproportionately impacting communities of, of color. And so, while we do need to celebrate this as a victory, we need to remember that there's a lot of work to be done. Having trials and having guilty verdicts is a victory, but people should not be dying from police interactions, period. And so it begs the question of how many George Floyds, Breonna Taylors, Dante Wrights, Rodney Kings, how many Black humans need to be political martyrs before 
they can safely live in America. And so we see from the George Floyd incident, you know, we've had a year of protests, a three-week trial, and almost 11 hours of deliberation to determine that a killing that was caught on camera, in fact, occurred. And this would not have been the same case if it was, for example, if George Floyd was white. We know this, the research shows that. And so it's movement for our country, but there's still some disheartening uh, involved because it felt like it should have been a no-brainer. And a lot of Black people celebrated this as a win, um, but still had to experience the death of someone from their community, a loss of a family member, father, son, loved one. Um, and this was a sense of relief, even though it should have never come to this in the first place. And so I do want to just say that we can't deny that progress is being made. You know, voices are being heard. Ears are perking up. We've seen that people from all walks of life are starting to demand change. And so there is still work to be done. We're moving in the right direction. Um, and if anything, we've learned from this how important transparency is for holding systems accountable and system actors accountable. This was one of the first time in history that technology was so instrumental in getting the right verdict. And so the more that we can create uh, systems of accountability, the, the further we're going to go. Um, and I think that that is one of the reasons that the George Floyd case and the guilty verdict of, of Chauvin was so monumental in this time. Agreed. Uh, everything you said, um, because we, we have to start saying that, you know, if all lives are going to matter, then our justice system has to act in that, you know, in that fashion and with that accord and and, and kind of keep it in the realm of, of current events and to kind of go into your uh, your research expertise with youth violence. One of the things that we reported on was a little uh, out of the Supreme Court was some sad news where, you know, apparently it seems OK to punish juveniles and minors for life without parole for something they did when they were young and, you know, not give them a opportunity to rehabilitate themselves and get out. Uh, this, you know, obviously harms the minority communities, you know, even more, you know, especially when you consider our youth sometimes are more troubled or are in more toxic, you know, communities or home situations. So Cassandra, our second question, you know, just give us your thoughts on how this is harmful and, and what we maybe can do about this. Yeah, I completely agree. Policies that uh, keep young people or any people in the system for a prolonged period of time really are setting them up to fail. We there again, the research shows that there is no benefit to long term benefit to keeping people in incarcerated for long periods of time, especially youth. So, you know, a lot of my work has been focused on adolescent populations, 18 to 25 years of age. And like you said, they're coming from oftentimes uh, systems of uh, racism and disadvantage and toxic um, communities, uh, broken households. And they are still in a very vulnerable stage of development up until the age of 25. The brain is still developing for young people. And it's really important to be able to give them the access to services and um, opportunity that they need to succeed in the world and taking them out of the community for long periods of time, putting them in an environment that we know produces adverse health uh, outcomes uh, is really setting them up to when they're released to not be able to get out of this in, of this environment and these communities that they're coming from. Um, so the way that we can think about approaching life, uh, life without parole or similar policies is uh, understanding the research and the evidence about how impactful this is for young people and also how it disproportionately impacts communities of color. We will see that more black and brown people will be sentenced to life without parole, will uh, spend longer time uh, before getting released in, the, in these adverse settings. And when they are released, we'll have less opportunity to be able to rehabilitate and successfully re-enter re their society. So um, I think that as we need to continue to use research that highlights the disparities by race and then develop policies that uh, that conflict with, with life without parole and really show that the harms that come out of this um, are detrimental for the young people in our community and for society as a whole. Exactly. And, and <clears throat> exactly. One of the things, you know, we, we talked about the current events, but 
we did want to ask just more broadly speaking, you know, about our, our current prison, you know, system. And so um, we know it's, you know, we know since 2009, like the prison population has been steadily declining too slow for many people, but it is declining. You know, I mean, since 2009, the imprisonment rate has fallen 17% and it's, it's fallen the most in the black community, which is what we are we're wanting to see. But, you know, despite those decreases, America still has the world's largest prison population uh, with over 2 million people behind bars in 2019. So just a really broad question, Cassandra, just, you know, how did the United States, which has about 5% of the world's population, end up with the world's largest prison population? And do you think it's, you know, a contradiction to claim to be, you know, the, the land with the free, but we have the most people behind bars? Yeah, absolutely. There are contradictions between the the way that the United States has used incarceration and, um, you know, talking about freedom and rights, especially for black and brown people um, who are, as you mentioned, disproportionately incarcerated. And, you know, what led us to have such a large population incarcerated were, you know, the drivers of um what led people to being in in these facilities, um, the crime bill of 1994, which incentivized people to states to build prisons and fill them, um, which, you know, was at that time considered a way of decreasing crime or decreasing um, criminal behavior. And so that what there are lots of drivers of mass incarceration, including crime bills, including the way that uh, police were encouraged to uh, uh, um, over-police communities of color, stop and frisk laws, the 13th Amendment, which which abolished slavery, except for in the case of punishment. Uh, We saw lots of different policies and practices being shifted in the way that they were implemented to be able to continue to incarcerate groups of people, often Black people, um, and fill these prisons that were being built and incentivizing states to be built and to, and to fill them. And so um, there are, you know, as you said, there, we are declining in terms of our population because of policies that are still being shifted, such as diverting people from courts or from uh, being detained as part of their bail, um, early releases. And we are seeing a lot of people getting more community supervision, but that's still a large, even though our prison population is going down, our community supervision population is still pretty high. So we're shifting the way that we are keeping people under community supervision, which, as you mentioned, is counterproductive to really giving people their rights and freedoms back um, and getting out of the system. But then even after that, dealing with the collateral consequences, for example, through, you know, ban the box, meaning people have to report their criminal convictions when going up for a job, and that can affect their economic stability or, and, um, or access to services. Uh, and so we see that it follows people. So it's not just that they're incarcerated and that we've incarcerated millions of people. It's also following them past incarceration, despite the declining population. And so, um, so I think that we also need to remember that even though black commu- black people are uh, a big part of that population that's declining, there's other populations that are still high. We see that women, especially black women, are still being incarcerated at higher rates because of things like trauma and broken households and being uh, coming from underserved communities. We're not providing enough resources in the communities that can prevent people from intersecting with the criminal justice system to begin with. And so we need to focus on a really multifaceted approach to preventing people from being able to get into the facilities. We need to hold system actors accountable and not incentivize incarceration and building more prisons. Uh, And we also need to consider what we're doing to reinvest in our communities to be able to to set people up for success once they're released from, from the prisons as well as a way of really combating mass incarceration and the, the consequences that we've seen result from it. 
You're absolutely on it, Cassandra. And you're you're almost setting up the stage perfectly going into our second segment where we're going to really be talking about flaws in the system. So um, listeners, what we're going to do, we're going to give you your first break here. And when we come back, we're going to get into our second segment where we're going to talk, like I said, about some flaws in the system. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get back into it here with our second segment. Remember, we're joined today by Cassandra Remdath, Senior Research Associate and Project Director for the Urban Institute's Prison Research and Innovation Initiative. All right, Cassandra, so let's get into it here. Our second segment here, talking about some flaws in the system here. Um, with doing a little bit of digging, I was you know, able to go on to OpenSocietyFoundations.org. They were putting up some foundings about uh, sentencing. And they see that blacks and Latinos get harsher sentencing when it comes to, you know, whites and similar situations. This is especially aggravated when you look at young black and Latino males, which really tend to get the most severe uh, sentencing treatments. Whites often get larger reductions in sentence time and tend to have, uh, I guess you could say, better legal defense. So our question here, Cassandra, um, can the issue of harsher sentencing be fixed with better legal teams or are we really getting at a, a deeper issue here? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's so it's so complex because I think that so much of the system, the legal system, the way that we approach things like sentencing are and have always been rooted in a racist system. And it ties back to slavery, you know, despite formally abolishing varying forms of segregation or, um, you know, ways to separate uh, white and black people, we haven't dismantled yet the barriers to g- gaps in equality, sentencing disparities being an example um, in that the way that we've we've uh, shifted the way um, crime or is defined or the way that we respond to it is still inherently biased. And so this is due to unconscious bias, overt bias, racism that's baked into s- social structures. Um, and Sentencing disparities specifically are an example of how uh, we use our laws to continue to oppress black and brown people. And so in order to reverse that, we really have to think about how the people in positions of power have a responsibility to think about the way that they're stigmatizing people and communities and behaviors. And that's a really hard thing to do because you're challenging white supremacy and white privilege in a society that is still built that way. So uh, being in a position of power, you're enjoying privileges that you have. And um, a a lot of the times things like sentencing disparities come as the inherent belief that, um, you know, black and brown people are responsible for the for the inequities that they're facing. So, okay, they chose to sell drugs, so they deserve a longer sentence. They uh, should have gotten a job. They should have gotten out of it. And the the blame is placed on the individual rather than taking a deep, hard look at, you know, sentencing disparities and uh, why asking questions. Why are black and brown people getting longer sentences? You know, why is that happening and how to reverse it? Because sometimes it's, it's, easier to blame individuals rather than a a system or a legislature that has allowed people to stay in positions of power. And so it would require them to step back and give up some of the privilege and some of the power. And so uh, sentencing disparities have been a topic of research in the criminal justice system for a very long time. And it's, it's taking time to be able to reform that because it's very difficult to to disaggregate and get to the root of why the disparities are happening other than the system is operating from within a racist uh, uh, principle. And so until we really look at data and develop policies that can dismantle these sentencing disparities and the disparities that come from the whole system, uh, we're going to continue to see such gaps in, in these 
treatment by the by the justice system. It, 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 that's right, exactly. And and one thing I thought was interesting hearing you talk was that 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 attitude of like, well, they just made a choice to sell drugs, or they just made a choice to you know shoplift some groceries. To me, it goes to a, a broader attitude, like you say, that the conditions that a lot of African Americans and Latinos experience in the country is the result of their own choices, and that the you know dominant society has no role in the reason why black neighborhoods and, and, and brown neighborhoods just have not or have always been in this pe- perpetual state of poverty in a lot of places. Um, and and it's, it's, it's kind of similar to what we're going, what's going on with the pandemic and how we treat, how we view health in this country, where we are focused mainly on treating people at the end of, you know, when they get a disease instead of focusing on prevention. Uh, I feel like we kind of do the same thing with the criminal justice system where we focus on, you know, giving somebody a harsher sentence once they've already committed the crime rather than focusing on how that person ended up in the situation they are to make that decision, you know, because um, people are not, you know, black people are not more inherently dangerous um, or more likely to commit crime than anybody else. I think they just live in a different set of, you know, they live in a different environment, you know, where the choices aren't so clear uh, like it is for the dominant society. But one, one uh, other question here we had was, this doesn't get a lot of attention, but I feel like it does play a, a very large role in why we did see this massive increase in imprisonment rates in this country. And, and that is the role of the district attorney. And so one reason we have seen a surge in, in of our prison population is because district attorneys across the country significantly increased the number of felony charges that they were bringing um, starting in the 90s and onward to about 2000. I think the mid 2000s, about 2008, 2009, um, the district attorney, you know, Cassandra, it is an elected position. So it's kind of like they're beholden to voters who want to feel, quote unquote, safe. And then the district attorney, in order to prosecute their cases, needs the help of the police departments, which we know already have a troubled you know, relationship with black and brown communities. And so it's like, you know, these two systems, the police department and the district attorneys are dependent upon each other to get their, you know, get their work done. The district, uh, the district attorney can protect the police officers from conviction. The officers can then help the DA prosecute criminals. But the system perpetuates inequality, as we already know, and it just doesn't seem there's an incentive to really fix it, I guess. So, you know, just I guess our question is how, you know, what's the role of the district attorney in this mass incarceration I'm serious that we've seen it. You know, how do you think we can try to reform it at all? Yeah, yeah. I think that the the district attorney's office and, you know, all actual major components of the system or leaders of the justice system, even in the policing and corrections department, all play a very powerful role at addressing inequalities in the in the system. And um, a lot of the incentives come from the political nature of their job, like you said, that they're they're appointed. And so really having leadership in an administra- administration that is pushing for justice reform and also holding the each of these system leaders accountable. I think that a lot of a lot of this, you know, the, the tough on crime or increasing felony charges in part comes from this, uh, you know, kind of scared, straight uh uh, belief or approach that we need to really over police and, and incarcerate and be tough on crime and just lock people up uh, to keep safety. Some of it is, is feeding into the media or the public perceptions of what they believe about certain communities and political power is important in reimagining the way that they talk about different groups. So in some ways, a lot of this is is connected to how people or political uh, leaders view and stigmatize populations. So they will, for example, you know, let, like take a look at the disparities in the way that they um, prosecute people who are using opioids versus people who are using crack. So we know that people using crack, uh, are there's a higher prevalence of people who use crack that come from communities of color. And the, the DAs will bring felony charges, like you said, put them away, put them away for a long time and don't let them get uh, parole, right? Or or probation. And then when you see the use of prescription drugs, which is more common in white communities, we see that they are considered to be victims of an opioid crisis or framed to, framed to 
um, be related to mental health needs. And so you see the way that we talk about crime, the way we change legislation, the way that um, politicians will say what's important or what's not important is often connected to the way that they're thinking about communities and communities of color. And, you know, once again, until we really encourage uh, political leaders and justice system actors to think about the way that they are defining crime and who those crimes and the responses to, to crimes are actually impacting, which are usually going to be communities of color, then we're going to still continue to per- perpetuate racial disparities in the system. And that's coming from the top. That's coming from political power. That's coming from justice system leaders. And they have a really big role in being able to push forward and push past racial inequities that we see continuing to occur uh, for decades. It's really important. You said that, Cassandra. And I, I know that as I was you know, uh, looking at the Urban Institute's website, looking at some of your publications, you talk about you know, how you know, the prison system, criminal justice system is really tied to slavery and how you know, these justice actors from the police officers to the judges to the lawyers to the correction officers, how they all play a role in you know, perpetuating this system and having this perception that justice is not fair or equitable here in America. Um, so it's really good that you're talking on that and talking about the role of the DA and how all this works, because uh, until we get people to, you know, people in the community start listening to these sorts of conversations and understanding that, you know, a lot of these people you vote for, you put into office, you know, this is how we reform, you know, the criminal justice system. This is how we get change for black and brown communities when it comes to sentencing, when it comes to police brutality, when it comes to uh, making sure that they have proper programs as inmates to rehabilitate themselves. It comes down to making sure that we as citizens, you know, uh, voice our concerns and make sure we vote for these people and make sure we've got the right people on the bus to take care of our uh, population. So really awesome that you're talking on that kind of stuff. So what we're going to do, listeners, we're going to give you another break here. When we come back, we're going to get into our third segment. So uh, Cassandra can just show us what justice actually looks like. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guess and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, Let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back, listeners. So we are continuing our conversation with Ms. Cassandra Ramdath, who is a senior research associate and project director for the Urban Institute's Prison Research and Innovation Initiative. So uh, we've talked at length about some of the problems, you know, with our current system and talked about, um, you know, the George Floyd trial or the Derek Chauvin trial. And so now we kind of want to talk about solutions and maybe trying to shift the mindset and get some real concrete ways in which we can try to, you know, reform the criminal justice system. And so, uh, Cassandra, the first question here is we've kind of seen this in bigger cities where, you're starting to see DAs, you know, try to lighten penalties for minor drug offenses. And I think I'm in Dallas. I think I heard maybe last year that some the DA was saying that they were not going to prosecute, you know, petty crimes like shoplifting and, you know, people stealing groceries because they're just trying to eat. And so, you know, and even with that, despite those changes, many people, usually on the right, the conservative side of the country, will say that America is becoming, quote, soft on crime. And all of this is really tied into a belief that black and brown people are inherently dangerous and and somehow need to be controlled. You know, you can't let them get away with anything. Uh, You give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. That mindset that um, there's something wrong with them and they need to be watched and controlled. And so I guess, you know, the question is, is kind of broad, but, you know, just how do we get Americans to understand that just because you give someone a harsher sentence or a longer sentence does not mean that you're going to be able to prevent crime from happening in this community, you know, because we have years of decades of proof now where we have locked up millions of people, yet the same neighborhoods that were poor and crime ridden in the 80s and 90s are still that way today. So just, you know, how do we get people to to move their mindset to try something different um, and understand that we're giving harsher punishment, it's not helping, and it's also breeding inequality in the system? 
Yeah, I think that's a loaded question with lots of good answers. Um, and that could take a very long time to explain. But I'll, I'll start by saying that I think, you know, as you said, there is plenty of research that that is out there showing that incarceration is not a deterrent. It does not prevent crime. In fact, it sets people up for uh, having more challenges once they're released due to the uh, you know, harmful nature that incarceration is removing someone from society for long periods of time, oftentimes being exposed to violence and other um, not getting mental health treatment that they might need or at times experiencing even more harmful treatment, such as being placed in solitary confinement or, uh, you know, being involved in violent incidents that we know that these environments are actually uh, creating um, uh, creating uh chances for people to not actually rehabilitate. So it's not setting people up in any way to make change or to be able to go out when they're released. We know that 98% of the people that go into a a facility are released and um, being released without the skills that they may need, without opportunities for um, economic stability and mobility. Um, And it's actually been proven that incarceration is harmful for individuals for their family because they've now been disconnected uh, from their family. And now that's a collateral consequence. That family is now uh, absorbing some of the consequences of incarceration Um, and just the community at large. We're removing people from society, that society, that community is being impacted by the many people that are removed and can't contribute to the, the community, the neighborhood. And oftentimes, again, we see that this is happening mostly in black and brown communities. So we're further disadvantaging already underserved communities by continuing to take people out and incarcerate them and um, really cause more harm to them. And they don't come out healthier or better equipped for getting jobs or uh, accessing education or health care that they need. Um, and and it you can when you look at the numbers and the research, you can see how that is impacting communities of color. And so the other thing I'll say is that in, in order to sort of convince society, community, peoples of color, people of color, uh, that really tough on crime is not the right way to go. I think there are a couple things that are important. So one of them is, you know, consuming research and policy is so important for con- con- for telling a story and persuading people to um, not fall into the, the media traps or um, false information. And so research is continuing to shed light on these issues and conditions of confinement and and the harms of, for example, solitary confinement or why incarceration is not, in fact, uh, effective and why we should actually be uh, focusing on community reinvestment. We have the Justice Reinvestment Initiative, which focuses on pushing funding to um, community resources and mental health treatment and substance abuse treatment rather than uh, incarceration or, or prison facilities, take that money, put them into school and education, get people to succeed before they enter into the facility, which we know is going to put them in, put them on a path that's not going to allow them to get back on their feet. Um, We also need to continue building mechanisms of accountability. In the George Floyd case, we saw how important that camera uh, footage was. Technology such as body cameras, cell phones, and other ways to create uh, transparency and therefore accountability in systems. So regular reporting of data, how many police killings were there, how many uses of guns or uses of force were there, and this needs to be placed on a public forum, creating oversight agencies so that when things like this happen and there are complaints that an external oversight agency is reviewing and making data uh, public so that um, it's not an internal uh, a review process where, for example, like the um, someone in leadership at the police department is reviewing the complaints, that's a conflict of interest, and it's hurting the trust from the community and the police. And so having external oversight agencies for corrections, for prisons, for uh, police officers, for courts even, um, to review cases. And um, thinking about uh, another important piece is the advocates. There are plenty of advocates that have been doing this work for years and years and years before Black Lives Movement happened. And we have to, we, we can't discredit that. We all need to get behind Black Lives Black Lives Matter and support what they're calling for and 
what positive changes have already been made and what we're, we're, what we're starting to see. We can't lose momentum. I think we have the ears of these political powers and of the, you know, legal actors. And with this, you know, the more we protest and demand change and ask for accountability, ask for transparency, the better we are going to be able to, to create some sort of pressure and accountability to push change in the political realm. And I just, Again, we'll say that the community advocates have been doing so much work pounding the pavement, not just since George Floyd, but even before that. And some of where we can take the burden off is really as change makers, policy makers, um, politicians really be as committed to justice as they are and consuming the research from a racial justice lens and looking again and again and again at how every decision and policy that is implemented impacts communities of color and find ways to reduce that. So elevating the voice and the power of black and brown people, bringing them to the decision-making table and giving them the space, giving them the power, the voice to make change is also important for politicians to get behind and really support that there is a, a racist system that we are needing to reverse the effects of. And that goes throughout the entire criminal justice system and and politicians, DAs, chief uh, pol- police chiefs need to be responsible for remediating some of the harms that are rooted in a history of slavery in the justice system. You know, Cassandra, when you say it like that, it's just it's, you, you make it sound so simple and easy that it's almost like anyone should be able to understand and accept that. But for some reason, we have such an issue in our society with people just understanding those simple facts and, and, and how we need to really focus on, you know, we as a society, how can we all be productive members working together to better, you know, the community? Because that's what it's all about. Um, one of the other things we wanted to ask you within this segment kind of goes to some of the, uh, some of your expertise, um, your, your work with the Fathers Advancing Community Together program, which was aimed at improving responsible parenting, healthy relationships and economic stability for low income fathers. Um, Devin and I, we've spoken a lot about how parenting is a missing piece to help to really rebuild our youth. So we wanted to ask you, Cassandra, what are some of those key findings that you were able to uncover to give to our parents to show why their role as parents can really help to keep their children out of the criminal justice system? Yeah, I there were a couple of things that we found from from that uh, project in particular, but more generally speaking, parenting is so important, especially for for fathers and young men, young men coming from black communities. Uh, we often see a history of um, uh, not having a male model or a father figure or, you know, even both mother and father figure in these lives. And that can often uh, influence the way that that person is brought up or that person um, perceives and views their life and their uh, abilities to navigate um, challenging environments and challenging situations. And so parenting is so important for building um, skills and um, just even encouraging um, going to school or getting jobs in, 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 in these younger populations. And so one of the things that we uh, tend to see is that parenting is so important, but the support for that in um, underserved communities is very difficult because especially Black uh, fathers, since that's the specific example we're, think- we're talking about, uh, they don't, they're, they're juggling so many things. They're juggling trying to find a job. They're, ju- they're juggling perhaps trying to get education. Again, they're set up by so much systematic, uh, systemic disadvantage that it, parenting also becomes very hard because then you're also finding challenges with financial success or how to make sure you're getting all of the right things for your child. And when it oftentimes uh, parents are trying to survive, they're in survival mode because they don't have uh, equi- equitable access to what is needed and, and the resources um, to be able to to parent in a way that is setting up their child to be able to succeed. Maybe they are juggling uh, uh, a relationship with the with the mother of the child. And so there are so many aspects that are, are that are uh, challenging for people who are trying to improve their parenting uh, and without the resources that are important that are necessary to parent in a way that is healthy for both the parent and the child it's it's going to be difficult and and again we see this mostly in communities of color where 
especially black men, are, are not able to get those resources. And we know that there's a connection between strong parenting and healthy outcomes for young children. Um, but oftentimes with, with black and brown men, they are juggling so much because of the history of trauma that they're coming from, the communities with less resources. They often themselves may not have had equal access to education or employment. Um, they may have also been removed from the community and then in and out of uh, carceral settings. And so they're even with the parenting resources that you know, they might get from a program, it's not enough. They still need more um, equitable and fair access to resources to be able to parent when we know the research shows how, how influential strong parenting is for young people in the community. Right. Right. And that's, and that's something that we you hear more discussions about that, making sure that you have a strong family structure um, that will help to prevent, you know, the younger folks in our in our community from going out and feeling like they have to commit some of these acts and end up in the system. Um, because once you're in the system, it's hard, very, very hard to get out. But one way in which a lot of folks have, um, or at least some people have been able to get out, is through the First Step Act that Donald uh, President Donald Trump signed into law in 2018. And so um, before we got you out of here, we just wanted to ask, you know, this is, you know, the question is recidivism, you know, the, the law itself is is geared towards helping inmates by addressing their needs and, and fitting them with productive programs that reduce their risk. And so we just wanted to ask you, you know, in, in your opinion and in your research, maybe how, how effective has the First Step Act been in creating more productive citizens out of prison? And how can we improve upon addressing the needs of inmates um, to get, you know, to help them get reacclimated back into, into society when they are released? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of good research that is examining the impact of the First Step Act. It, and it is it is premature to really uh, confidently say what the outcomes are, because it will take a long time to see, you know, once people are released or, you know, six months, 12 months, two years, five years down the road where they've been able to succeed or not. But I do think that it is a step in the right direction to focus on really providing people with the resources that that they need. And what we see most often for people who are reentering society or the types of services that we need to provide people who are incarcerated while they're preparing for release is usually economic stability and education. Um, we need to provide um, job training from the from before they're even out in the community so that when they get out and they're only given maybe their $10 to get home, what are they going to do the next day? So how are we making sure that people are perhaps set up from with jobs from the time that they're in the facility? Are they, are they getting access to education in the prison so that they can come out with some credits or some uh, certification or something that's going to really help them when they get home, be able to get housing without a job. You often can't get housing um, or you can't um, pay the bills or you don't have a car or it's so important to think about what is day one going to look like when you're out uh, way before you're reaching day, the last day that you're in in the prison. And so thinking about the needs of, of incarcerated people as a huge step of being able to re a uh, huge part of being able to reintegrate is is so key. And the research continues to show that we need to make sure that people are going to have economic stability, housing, uh, access to education, and also family connect connectivity. Uh, while people are in the facility, what's also going to help them come out and uh, succeed is maintaining their family connection. Otherwise, they can come out and be very isolated and cycle back into some of the behaviors that led them in the first place, especially related to substance use or mental illness. And so making sure that people really stay connected, which is hard when the purpose of incarceration is to remove people from society. So rethinking the way that we are incarcerating people and what what is happening while they're there so that we're not just you know, releasing them on that day and giving them some, you know, phone numbers to call for a job, but that before, way, way, way before, we're thinking about reentry from day one of being placed into the facility. I, I like what you're saying there. It's it's really powerful. It's it's, it's almost you know um, a different way of, of thinking when it comes to prison. It's about you know we're you know instead of just punishing and separating the person from society, it's about you know, letting them do, you know, serve their time for 
what they did, but learning from that, you know, bearing them, you know, them throughout that situation, uh, really, you know, trying to figure out, well, if they're in here for 10 years, what's, you know, like you said, what's day uh, one going to look like once they get out here and start really putting them on a pathway from, you know, when they get to prison and when they get ready to get out. So really thank you, uh, Cassandra, for that. Um, we're going to wrap up our third segment and we'll come back with our break, Cassandra. We just want to get your your final message, which is just a, a nice way to kind of send off our episode to our listeners. So listeners, we're going to give you our last break. And like I said, we're going to come back with Cassandra's final message. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get back into it here to wrap up our episode and do our final message. Remember, we are joined today by Cassandra Remdat, Senior Research Associate and Project Director for the Urban Institute's Prison Research and Innovation Initiative. So, Cassandra, just to kind of set the stage for your final message, more people are finally starting to kind of realize the plight of black and brown communities, especially when it comes to the criminal justice system. People see the overcrowded prisons, the school, the prison pipeline, the over-policing of our communities, and the harsher sentencing that people get. The fight for justice is really an all-hands-on-deck struggle and a constant battle, as we've said, against systemic racism here in America. So, Cassandra, just to kind of leave us with the final message, give us something that's going to motivate our leaders and our listeners even to join in on the fight for justice and equality for all. Yeah, I think that what's so, so important for us to remember is that it especially Right now, we need to get behind the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement, um, and we need to reduce the system. We need to, whether that means to defund the system, especially in the, incarcer- the carceral system, uh, reduce by incarcerating less, changing our laws to make sure that we're not uh, continuing to fuel people into these prisons that we continue to build, reduce the amount of prisons that we have, uh, reimagine the way that we're thinking about uh, people in the community and if they commit a crime or engage in certain behaviors, you know, why are we locking them up? Why are we putting them behind bars? Why are we removing them from society? What else can we do? How can we prevent that? Let's invest in the community. Why are we, why are we not investing in the community, especially black and brown communities? Why are we not setting them up uh, to have resources, mental health uh, support, uh, substance use treatment, the things that we know are creating uh, avenues into the justice system, why are we not reversing that? And we need to really, really think critically from a racial justice lens as to how to rem- remediate the harms of, of slavery that are continuing to permeate our system as we uh, see even today. And so the other thing I'll say is that, you know, change is slow, but it's happening. And I think that, you know, we're on this path. Um, so many advocates are fighting for this. And uh, I think that we as a community, we as a country have a lot more work to be done. Black and brown people have been negotiating for their rights that they should have had always. And it's our responsibility to now take off this burden. People should not be um, negotiating from a sub- subservient place for what they deserve. And we have to take that burden off of them and really act as a community, act as one society. And so, you know, as long as we're on this path and we're highlighting and validating and lifting up the voices and experience of people who are adversely impacted by the system and its bias, then we're moving in the right direction. And that's what we should continue to do. So um, I always like to refer to uh, James Baldwin, who always says, we all who, who said we all have to live together and love each other, not as blacks and whites, but as human beings. And so this is a North Star that I refer to often in my work as I continue to advocate for racial and social justice in my personal and professional endeavors. And I think that it's so important that our political leaders, our communities and everybody alike remember to consider that we really need to move forward and dismantle racial racial bias in the system to be a more just and fair America. 
No, I love I loved that message there um, because that's something, you know, especially the words of James Baldwin. I personally love James Baldwin. Um, and he, he's, he's amazing. And he saw things in a way that a lot of people couldn't put it into words. And so um, that message that, you know, we have to live together. Um, and, 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 and it's true, you know, we have to, we're, we're trying to figure this out. America is an experiment. Um, and so we have to understand that we are constantly examining and trying to move, you know, towards a more perfect union. And so, um, you know, just this conversation today has been eye-opening to hear, you know, where the system is and where it's going wrong, where the flaws at, but also, you know, you named a litany of possible solutions and things that we can do to help get rid of the inequality, not get rid of it totally, but at least try to blunt some of the inequality that the, the current system breeds, you know, it's, and I think sometimes we have to have these conversations to challenge people's, you know, preconceived notions about crime and how we view crime in America and in question whether what we did in the nineties was, was the right course of action. And I think it's overwhelmingly no, um, you know, we still have a lot of the same problems we had back then. And so we have to try it a different way. And so I just appreciate you bringing your expertise on here to, to present a different viewpoint and hopefully folks will hear this and, and, and really take some time to think about whether um, the way that we view our criminal justice system, is it working? Is it doing what it's intended to do, which is to, you know, to stop people from committing these crimes and, and folks can leave prison and continue to be, con- you know, productive citizens. So I just appreciate that message. Adrian, I know you got some thoughts as well. As always, but I'll make them quick. Uh, Cassandra, I just thank you for your perspective. I, I think more than anything, um, you know, listeners, leaders, community members, everyone needs to take out of this message is that our criminal justice system should be about, you know, rehabilitation and not punishment. Yes, you know, people did something wrong, but their underlying reasons, whether they be, uh, you know, mental health issues, lack of opportunity, there's a lot of different things for that, for why people do the things that they do. But instill, we've got to figure out how to help them through that and get them back into society because we can't, you know, move forward towards progression until we all do it together. So, Cassandra, I just really thank you. Know, thank you for your message. Thank you for the fact that you kept going back to the research. Um, it wasn't all, you know, about, you know, just, you know, hearsay. It was about research and data about things that, you know, that have been tested and have been proven to be true. Uh, and that's what we've got to go back to the truth, not the falsehoods, not the spin from the media, uh, the bias from any political parties, but just the facts of the matter. And that says that rehabilitation, not punishment. So thank you so much, Cassandra, for really just crafting a great message for us to end our season and to lead us into what we need to be doing when it comes to criminal justice reform. So thank you. Thank you so much, Adrian and Devin. It's been such a pleasure to engage with you all on this conversation. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing all the great work that is going to come out of this. As I said, we all have a responsibility in this. And I, and I appreciate you allowing me to, to share uh, what I know and um, hopefully keep pushing the movement forward. Great. Thank you again. And uh, make sure you continue to mask up, stay healthy. Uh, I know you probably been double vaccinated, but some people said they're still masking up for just a, a symbol. So make sure you stay healthy. And uh, listeners, what we're going to do, Dev and I, we're going to take our last break and we're going to come back and wrap up our show. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, so welcome back. So uh, like we said at the beginning of the show, this is, sadly, this is our last episode of season two. Um, so the podcast is going to be on a break. Me and Adrian are going to be recharging the old batteries or something to that effect. And we'll be getting ready to come back um, strong for season three. So um, go ahead and mark your calendars. Our first episode of season three is going to be on a Saturday. So it's a little earlier. Uh, during the week, but it's going to be on Juneteenth of 2021. So it's June 19th, 2021. It's going to be a special weekly roundup, Juneteenth style. That's going to be the the kickoff for season three. 
um, for the for the Black Agenda podcast. So be on the lookout for that as we go into break. Um, again, we'll still be posting. We'll still be around. Um, if you have any, you know, feedback from the show, we of course we would appreciate that. Uh, but again, this is our last episode that's covering criminal justice reform. But we will be back with you Juneteenth um, to kick off season three with a special episode on Saturday. And so. Again, even though we are going on break, you can still donate to us. We will still take your money. <laughs> so, Adrian, uh, you can let the folks know where they can donate to us. <laughs> yeah, you are absolutely right, Devin. Uh, listeners, you know, if you're, uh, you know, not if you're during our break, if you want to chip in and pitch in, you know, definitely feel free to do that. Uh, we always like to remind people, you know, Devin and I, we started this podcast to, you know, engage with people, uh, educate the community, but we really started this because it's a, it's a, it's an ongoing trajectory. It's an ongoing mission to really rebuild communities, to really transform, you know, people, to really aid towards, you know, bridging the gap with this systemic racism issue. So that's what we're trying to do here, really build an organization, build something that's going to have true momentum with our political leaders. And we need your money to do that. Yes, it costs money to do Zoom, Podbean, Malatu, but to really take our mission even further, it's going to take a lot more money to do that. So please go to our website, blackagendapod.com, click the donate tab, start by giving a dollar and go from there. We'd love to have your support. The other thing we always like to mention is our charity of the month, which for May we've been recognizing Campaign Zero, which goes well to the episode we've been talking about today. But Campaign Zero encourages policymakers to focus on solutions with the strongest evidence of effectiveness at reducing police violence. One of their sayings is, we can live in a world where the police don't kill people by limiting police interventions, improving community interactions, and ensuring accountability. So a really, really positive organization. Go check them out, Campaign Zero. Uh, Devin, tell them about uh, how they can find us on all the major platforms. Exactly. So, yes, you can find us on the major platforms, which are Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. Um, And again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. So we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find us there. Then also you can find us on YouTube. Um, Just search the Black Agenda Podcast. Um, And so, again, make sure you like, share and follow us on there and subscribe to our YouTube channel, but also subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your music, you can find the Black Agenda podcast. So, again, make sure you share this with your friends, families, coworkers, anyone else. Um, We're just trying to get this content out there to as many people as possible. So we appreciate it and love it when you share our content. So, again, we want to send a thank you to Cassandra Ramdath from the Urban Institute. Uh, thank her. We want to thank her for a great, in-depth, um, insightful interview, really. Some good, re- really, really good information in there. And we hope you learned something. And also, we want to thank you. We want to thank you, our listeners, our fans, for listening and watching. It's been a heck of a season. Um, you know, we started off aging with, you know, talking about Joe Biden and what he was going to do for the country. And we've ended it with criminal justice reform. We got a whole bunch of good stuff in between. So what a season. It's been a long one, <laughs> but it's been a really good it, one. It has. Not to mention, Devin, we did a a, a very thorough HBCU series where we, we really uh, we, we, we talked to a lot of great leaders, uh, got a lot of great messages. Um, just just a really great season. I mean, from from speaking to the people who started, you know, Black History Month, Black, you know, Black History Week. I mean, uh, really good. The history makers. So listeners and fans, we just really appreciate it. Uh, like Devin said, I yeah, I'm ecstatic to see our downloads go up, our followers, likes, subscribers go up each day. So we really appreciate it. And we can't wait to go into season three. Uh, we're going to get even better season three, more topical, uh, more current events, more weekly roundups and more great interviews and conversations. So uh, Devin and I, we really, really can't wait till we come back off of this break and hit you with season three. Exactly, exactly. And just in case you didn't know, we are well over 4,300 downloads, and we are just now getting to a year. We'll be a year on Juneteenth. So I think that's pretty darn impressive, 4,000 downloads um, in a year, Adrian. So that lets us know that there at least is some, you know, there's a there's a base out there who wants to hear the things that we're talking about. There's um, a little bit of an appetite for the Black Agenda <laughs> podcast out there. And we appreciate nice that. Appetite. It's going to get better and better. 
Exactly. And so, again, we'll leave you. Again, we appreciate you listening um, and supporting us. And we'll be back um, to kick off Season 3 on Juneteenth, 2021. That's June 19th, 2021. That's a Saturday. We'll be back with a special weekly roundup just for you all to kick off Season 3. So, until then, we'll catch you next time. Thank you.